of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, uh, the composers, the production designers, the costume designers, the film editors, the sound editors, sound mixers, you name it, we talk to them. And we're talking to some Interesting, interesting people today on Behind the Lens. But hey, if you're listening right now, you're obviously listening to us on AdrenalineRadio.com or you're watching the live stream, the boring live stream, on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook, chain, uh, Facebook page. The only thing that changes every week to a degree uh, until I manage to round up some new swag um, is the tablescape that I like to change up. And if you happen to be watching on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page right now, you're going to see front and center, I have to get up to show you this, is all you General Hospital fans, James Patrick Stewart's new album, Clean Slate. It is fabulous. It is wonderful. And yes, he autographed it for me. Get it, get it, get it. You know, GH fans know him as Valentin Cassidyne on General Hospital, and uh, he has become a fan favorite. And, of course, he's in the middle of shooting more of these country, county line films, but my old pal, Tom Wopat, the original county line film is now on DVD. Yes, Tom signed it for me. But he's making more county line films. So... Wopat fans, be on the lookout for that. And of course, if you haven't gotten it, if you love Quentin, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the book is great. The book is great. If you love the film, you're going to love the book in Quentin Tarantino's inimitable speak. Um, it's fabulous. So uh, hopefully I'm going to have some new literary editions in the coming weeks. Uh, thanks to Larry Edmonds Bookshop down in Hollywood. Um, just waiting for those to come in. But as but if you miss us on AdrenalineRadio.com, if you miss us on AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page, you can catch up with Behind the Lens 24-7 at BehindTheLensOnline.net at any of your favorite podcast uh, outlets after that, Podbean, Spreaker, Stitcher, uh, iTunes. I think I think Lydia has has popped us onto Google Podcasts. If not, I'm going to yell at her and tell her she has to get that done. Uh, but you can find us and listen to BTL Radio Show 24/7 on a variety of platforms. But right now, you're here today for our live show, and very exciting. Uh, we are going to have joining us at the midpoint of the show, she's back, Jessica Devaney. Uh, our regular listeners are going to recall Jessica was here a couple months ago, right after Tribeca, 
where her latest film, which she's a producer of, Pray Away, had just had its world premiere. Uh, But at that time, she was talking in her capacity really as the founder of Multitude Films. Uh, A very interesting conversation about filmmaking, about producing. Um, But she's back today, and we're going to talk specifically about Pray Away. It is now airing on Netflix, and i got to tell you, it is one powerhouse documentary. Um, Be looking to hear more about Pray Away come awards season, which is only a couple months away. Uh, But we'll get into that when Jessica joins us at the midpoint. But first, I'm so excited about this film. Uh, I always love it when stuntmen, stunt coordinators make the move from stunt coordination or second unit work and step up and direct a film. Scott Waugh has done it. Rick Waugh has done it. Dan Bradley has done it. So many others have done it. And now Peter Drago Timon joins the bunch. Drago, very talented stuntman and stunt coordinator, but now... Here he is with The Stairs. It is a thriller. A little bit of horror in there, but a little bit of sci-fi almost. But it is an edge-of-your-seat thriller. It is wow, 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 spellbinding. Um, and the premise is very simple. There is this really strange set of very clean, very clean white, stairs in the middle of a forest and a grandfather ironically played by John Schneider the other half of Tom Wopat's Dukes of Hazzard um, of Bo and Luke Duke but uh, John Schneider is one of the stars as is Kathleen Quinlan John Schneider plays a grandfather and he goes out into the woods with his young grandson Jesse and the boy finds wanders away as kids do wanders away finds these stairs and thinks it's something really cool but then all of a sudden these chalky white hands reach out from behind it grab him and he disappears cut to 20 years later and we have a group of hikers some experienced one nick uh played by adam corson so brilliantly played by adam corson not that much of a hiker um but they go into the woods and strange things start happening and then they stumble upon the stairs and it is just balls to the wall as we as bodies start dropping and we find out exactly what these stairs might be without ever getting a definitive answer the interesting thing is you would expect with a stunt coordinator a stuntman, that the film is going to be action-heavy. Drago wrote and directed this himself. Co-writer is Jason Lowe. First and foremost is character. They focus on character. Character drives this story. Action is a byproduct. But the action that is here, including a burning man or creature running through a forest, is all practical. Practical effects, practical stunts. Um, but it is the story and the characters that are so compelling. Um, before I let you hear this, my interview, my exclusive interview with Drago, let me tell you right now, August 12th, this week in 700 theaters around the country, one night only, one night only, 
in 700 theaters is going to be The Stairs. Then after that, the film will be available on uh, VOD, digital, and some premium uh, premium play. Uh, uh, I can't talk today. <laughs> and some premium venues. But this week, if you are anywhere in this country where the one of 700 theaters showing The Stairs... You are in for a treat. I can't recommend it highly enough. It is fabulous. But right now, without any further ado, let's take a listen to my exclusive, and you'll find out just listening to Drago, so many of the reasons why this film is so good. Here is Drago Timon talking The Stairs. Hey, Drago, how are you? Good, how are you, Debbie? I'm very excited to be talking with you. I I always love talking to stunt guys, stunt coordinators who make that leap to feature film direction. And I got to tell you, you made a really good leap with the stairs. Thank you. You bounded up these stairs three and four at a time. This is totally unexpected. Typically when you see somebody with a stunt background jump into storytelling, it's still very action-centric. You are very character-centric. This is not an action film that happens to have characters. This is a character-driven story that happens right. to have creatures burning and some fun things happening. Yeah. I am beyond impressed. I love this film. I could not look away from it. You hit everything that you needed to hit with this, from your cinematography to your sound to your casting to your story, the script, the character development, everybody is three-dimensional, and the editing, Michael Tang's editing, is so key here. And the way you hold back on reveals and building tension, job so well done, Drago. So well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was really important to keep that uh, that pacing, you know, and make sure that the pacing was, was tight, as, as tight as we can get it on a, you know, low-budget film. It pulls you, just like those creepy chalk fingers and, and elbows that come out from behind the stairs, just like they reach and they grab hold of Jesse and pull him in. That's exactly what you do with the audience in that moment. You pull us in and you do not let go. So well done. That totally took me by surprise with that tiny little chalky reveal. <laughs> I, 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 got it. I absolutely loved that image and the design you came up for with the quote-unquote creature, dimensional being, whatever we're going to call this thing, um, that, right. built, that built stairs in the middle of a forest. But that in that one scene, that shot... You drag us in, you take hold, and you do not let go. And I love it. I love it. Thank you. Uh, you know, this all starts with the script. Now, I've heard urban legends over the years. I'm from back east in suburban Philly, and there are so many legends, Revolutionary War era, about things that pop up in the forest, in the woods, things that soldiers allegedly saw back in the 1700s. You know, where did the idea for these beautiful, pristine white stairs in the middle of the forest come from? And by the way, who's cleaning them and keeping them so, so nice and white? 
that's that's the secret. <laughs> Darn. Um, where they came from is um, it's kind of a, a, a not really a long story, but um, I, I knew that I wanted to do a horror film. I wanted to kind of step out of uh, doing like an action film for my first film. I wanted mm-hmm. to show people that you know I could do something other than just action. I wanted to do something with character driven, you know, comedic, a little bit of uh, scariness. And so uh, I knew I wanted to do like a hunting or a hiking film, um, but I wanted to try to do something that was like, you know, different and didn't, uh, you know, more of an original story. And so I just started researching urban legends and all of the cryptid urban legends that I came across, I was like, you know, they're just not really hitting the mark Mm -hmm. for my first film. And so, you know, I was just like, you know, I just didn't want to do like a Bigfoot movie. I didn't want to do, you know, there's a couple of other really cool folklore, uh, like Native American creatures that um, really hit hit it on the nail, but um, I would need a budget for that. So, you know, there was a lot of things I had to like kind of think about was, you know, how can I do this with our budget, but also make it more interesting. So finally, I stumbled upon this forum where people were like posting crazy stairs that they found like hiking through the woods and they're like oh my gosh did anybody know where these stairs came from and it just like immediately i was like oh that's our catalyst and so i called up my buddy uh uh, jason lowe and uh, i was like this is our this is our script this is what we're going to do and uh we sat down and started going at it well and and your entree of having it be young jesse find these stairs now, if it were me as an adult and I saw stairs like that in the middle of the forest, I'm running the opposite direction immediately. Um, right. But a kid, they're going to go right to that, man. They're, they're going to want to. Exactly. So that entree is so key, and I love it. And Thomas Wethington, the, he knocks it out of the park. You did amazingly well casting him in that role. Um, because his face lights up with joy when he sees these steps and climbs up them, and it's like, oh, cool! And yeah. every kid, every little kid you can think of would be doing the same thing, which is also why I think this is a film that every parent should be showing their young child and saying, <laughs> this is why you don't go stray from mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. Um, yeah. I would have totally done that. If I would have saw them, I would have been like, whoa, cool. You know, I would have totally went and climbed up when I was like a, a little guy. So, yeah, I totally understand. And you add another element in there to reel us in because I was expecting him to like drop through the top of the stairs or, or just vanish into thin air. But no, then he comes back down the stairs because we he hears something. Right. Which is where your sound design comes into play. You really embrace the sounds of the forest, the wood, the leaves under the feet, the running on packed dirt, um, a distinct sound that comes from behind the stairs, the side of the stairs. So your sound comes into play here. So, you know, it really sparks that kid imagination. And you just, you zing us, man. Drago, you just... (laughs) <laughs> you take us on that ride. Thank you. Yeah, I talked to uh, Danny Knudsen, which was our uh, first 
uh, sound designer. Mm-hmm. And then uh, David Ho came in uh, uh, later on. He's with Bad Animals up in Seattle and helped uh, put a final mix and added a couple of other little uh, cool Foley sounds and stuff. But early on, I was, you know, it was very important to make sure that, one, we really capture that uh, out in the woods hiking experience with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the noises and everything, but also try to come up with uh, very intriguing uh, sounds and, you know, just to just to kind of put people on edge, yeah. but yet also kind of feel comfortable at the same time until, you know, then when everything really goes sideways then you know the sound design really picks up it it really does and by the same token not just do we have the sounds in the woods but we have the man-made sounds such as adam corson's character of nick who brought everything but the kitchen sink with him oh my gosh yeah that that is your comic relief for the whole film drago as he as they're tossing things out of his backpack and his gear and 10 cans of chili. And I didn't see anybody pull out a can opener, though. Um, you, <laughs> you've got tents, and you it's like everything but the kitchen sink. And I was roaring. I was laughing. But then you immediately snap us out of that. And here again, it's, it's Michael's work with editing. You snap us out of that with your sound, with screams. Um, and it, it's beautiful. But Ryan Purcell's cinematography, I got to hand it to the two of you, your visual tonal bandwidth and your use of framing in telling the stairs is so important here. And you do such a great job because you really keep us in a two shot to a mid wide for the bulk of the film. And as people start falling by the wayside in the woods, as people will do in the woods, the camera starts the camera starts coming in tighter and so as you're increasing and ratcheting up the tension through the pacing you're also mirroring that with your framing and i love that design talk to me about how you and ryan came up with the lighting and lensing design and construct that you have because it's very very effective in this story i'm glad you noticed um we sat down at length uh you know because i i had a complete vision from like start to finish and uh i also talked to uh, my colorist uh, mark todd osborne uh, who is an award-winning colorist uh, before we even started shooting as well and just asked him uh, his thoughts about it and how I wanted it was I just really wanted it to be you know soft and beautiful and just have like those colors pop and uh, you know all the way through the movie it, it slowly gets darker and mm-hmm. you know some of the colors get muted and then some colors colors just go from the wayside but the lighting was always there you know I, I really wanted to be able to see everybody's faces even during the dark uh, night shots because um i mean i've watched a lot of horror films but you know a lot of times you see a movie and it's uh you can only watch it in the theater it's almost unwatchable on your tv because mm-hmm. it's dark so I really, you know, wanted to make sure that we had lit it in a way that once it went to post and went to Mark, Mark Todd Osborne, our colorist, um, 
you could polish it in a way that, uh, you know, the details of the actors and the scene themselves wouldn't uh, just fall apart. Yeah, and, and that works really well because in those night shots, while you, you and Ryan embrace the negative space that gets created, you don't go into a solid black-black. You use the shadow that's created through fire. You use the shadow that comes through moonlight. So that while we have some negative space, it's not totally pitch dark. And right. of course, when we're under, when we're in the warehouse plant, whatever we're going to call it, um, <laughs> with the stairs, the industrial look is so cool. Um, you never really put us in total darkness. We've got deep shades of grays happening, and then Correct. you pop it with with a headlamp. And it's a very distinct GE white bright light bulb. It's not like a yellowed or anything like that. It's that GE, I, I, you know, people laugh at me and I say, no, go buy a GE bright white light bulb, not a soft white, the bright white. Um, and, exactly. and that's what you did. And so it catches, even though we know there's shades of gray in there, it then takes us by surprise and gives us another another jump and builds the tension up again. Um, you, you and Ryan put a lot of thought into this visual construct, and it shows. It really shows, Drago. Yeah, yeah he was a, a, a very instrumental partner in the vision of it. Uh, you know, we sat down many times, even during uh, filming, uh, as we were going along and, uh, you know, just discussing uh, shots and um, lighting and, you know, just really constantly just communicating. And Ryan Purcell just knocked it out of the park. His eye, his uh, professionalism, I mean, his experience alone, you know, just speaks volumes on the, on the film. And it was just a pleasure to work with him. And uh, I look forward to doing more, more film with him. Yeah, you've got a great collaboration going here, and, yeah. and it shows on the screen. But, you know, I'm curious, because as a stunt coordinator, as a fight choreographer, there's always a dance between the character, the action, and the camera. Here, while you don't have all of the fight sequencing that you are normally used to, you still have a dance between the characters amongst themselves and the camera. Was there any kind of learning curve for you in making that adjustment from the action, the action and how that interplays with the camera to how just re the regular characters and that dialogue and story plays with their movement? Do, you, do we let them turn their back? How are we going to block this? I'm curious if there was any kind of learning curve for you in that respect. And especially for an entire film, not just one scene. Right. Um, there wasn't really, I mean, you know, I, there's a lot of stuff that I did learn, but uh, talking about the dance, there really wasn't a whole lot that, um, you know, I was learning as I was going on that, just because, you know, when you're fight choreographing or being a second unit director and doing, doing stuff on set, you know, you're already understanding where the cameras need to be placed to capture the action and you know the nuances of the, of the characters themselves so when we got into it um i almost it felt almost really natural but i would say about 90 percent of the film 
just kind of felt like that way. But then there was a couple of challenging ones, uh, like for instance, the agitated uh, man and ghost mom uh, mm-hmm. scene. You know, we we just we knew what we wanted to get out of that, but uh, we spent probably a good couple of hours just blocking it out and making sure that the actors knew what they were going to be doing. We knew what we were going to be doing with our camera moves. Um, you know, so. You know that, and that—that's where Ryan comes in. Uh, he was just so instr- instrumental uh, in walking me through some of those steps because of his experience. But. You know, and it's interesting you mentioned that scene because something that you and your colorist did in that scene is you really you saturated the man and the ghost mom. The color yeah. on them is saturated, while everything else is more or less the natural rich forest greens and browns and i found that really striking and especially you know red for blood you you guys really make that pop because we don't really see a whole lot of blood in this film so when we do it's got to be memorable and you do that with your saturation and it works well awesome thank you very much you know the music is also a key part here you know, working with, with B.C. Smith and your music, you know, with fights, you don't, you know, stunts, you don't really have to worry about, oh, what's the music going to be? Half the time, you don't even have temp track at that point. Um, exactly. <laughs> you know, how, how, what were your thoughts musically as to what you wanted for this film? Because you could have gone into the total techno horror mode that so many people do, um, like a Zimmer kind of touch. You could have gone Bernard Herrmann or Max Steiner and orchestral, but what what were your yeah what were your considerations in working with Smith about this about the music? Well, um, I knew BC. Um, you know, he, he's won an award and uh, uh, from his uh, Smoke Signals at Sundance, and I listened to a couple of others uh, soundtracks and. I just knew that, you know, he was, he, he reached out to us, actually. Uh, he saw one of our Dread Central um, uh, articles in the beginning with uh, Adam Corson. And so he uh, saw the log line and was just like, oh, my gosh, you know, this looks really interesting. So he looked on IMDb, saw that there was a couple of people that he had worked with, uh, including one of our ADs, uh, and uh, gave him a call. And he's like, hey, I know this is kind of out of the norm, but, you know, do they have a somebody to do the score and uh he's like well let me let me ask and you know we didn't and so i was like yeah put him in touch with me and after having conversations and listening to his stuff i just knew exactly um what i wanted to do and that was basically give him free reign um you know because you know when you're writing the script you have a story and then when you uh, then direct it, it becomes a different story. And then when you give it to your composer, now he's accenting it and creating a different story with, with, with the music. So uh, what I really wanted from him was to make sure that all of the wood shots and all of that music was uh, very organic. And then when we go, I uh, don't want to give any spoilers away, but anything around the stairs, underneath the stairs, or has to do with the preachers of the stairs, then that becomes more industrial and more, mm-hmm. um, you know, otherworldly. And uh, I feel like he really knocked that out of the park. Um, I just, I really love his soundtrack. Yeah, and, and I, I really love the appropriateness 
with your emotional beats in this film because it does. It's not just emotion; it's capturing. Uh, you're also he's also cap- musically capturing a lot of your vis- visuals, and uh, yeah. it, it it truly does work well. But you know, once once you have everything on the page, and you know you're going to shoot this in the woods, and you really take advantage of that, and we get the whole the not just the majesty of the woods and the huge trees that have been there forever. Um, but you also get that claustrophobic sense, that isolated sense of, of these people are in there. And it's not that the forest is blanketing them in comfort. It's hiding something. And, that, and here again, that's kudos to Ryan in what he's capturing with the angles. But when you have a situation like that, your cast, that ensemble is so key. We have to believe that they are friends, that they snipe, that the women are better than the men and more adept at things. We have to believe all of that. So yep. how challenging was the casting? And then, of course, you throw in for their cachet, you got Schneider and you got Kathleen Quinlan. Yeah, and Trin Miller from uh, yes. Pocket Fantastic as well. But your bulk cast of you got Stacy and Tyra and Brent and Adam, and then you know Thomas is really a standout on his own. But you've got that core, that those core four. How how difficult was that to cast? Um, really, well, we had a casting director, Jeremy Gordon, um, and he knew all of them personally. And uh, as funny as it is, they're actually all friends as well. So they already had like kind of a connection and uh, he kind of sold us on the idea that like, listen, they're, they're already friends. They already have that camaraderie and um, can bounce, you know, comedy and, and whatnot off of each other, uh, you know, give them a try. And so, uh, you know, set up some Zoom calls and um, did a, uh, a little video with uh, Adam Corson and as soon as I saw his video I was just like you know I sent it over well at first I texted Jason my co-writer I was like I found the guy found found our guy and uh, he's like really and I'm like yeah I'm sending you over the video right now so I sent him over the video and he's like oh my gosh he's like yeah this is this is uh this is him and so we just knew right away that Adam was him and uh I didn't even need to see uh tape from Josh Karate uh, just having a Zoom call with him, I knew like he almost embodies a uh, Dirty Doug character in real life. Mm-hmm. And just the way he was talking, you know, his inflection. Uh, I just knew right away, like, yeah, he's also perfect. And then, you know, of course, then Tyra, she was amazing, and uh, you know, Stacy as well. Yeah, and and I love, and this is kudos not only to Adam and his performance as Nick. But to you and to Jason, in developing the characters, the arc and the growth that we see Nick go through in this film is outstanding. He doesn't stagnate because he could have been a total buffoon for the entire film. You know, and you're watching the film and it's a situation where, okay, who's going to be the first one to die or disappear in a horror film? And you're thinking, okay, the guy with ten cans of chili and no can opener. He's he's going bye bye. Exactly. <laughs> <He's, laughs> and, and but then you see him run with panic on his face. It's like, okay, he can outrun people, so okay, maybe he's got a shot. But 
totally turn, by casting Adam, you totally turn it on its ear, and then you give us this great arc, emotional development and growth in him. Yeah. And especially him and his brother as well. Yeah, you know, uh, Brett Bailey. Yeah, um, you would think that Josh would be the real, uh, the real manly man, macho guy who's going to save everybody. And survive, and but then you're watching. Okay, people can laugh when the characters are run away, but boy, Nick was a smart one. <laughs> I'm running. Yeah, I'm, he was. He was. And, uh, but you know, yeah, not, I really, I really wanted to get uh, that relationship. You know, because uh, Josh's character, um, you know, he's just he was always in charge of everything. So it was nice for him to, you know. First, you see uh, Adam's character, you know, kind of the, the funny guy that's kind of like quirky and not very socially, you know, socially inept. And then, you know, you start warming up to him and you start like he starts owning him, his, his, uh, his own power and mm-hmm. he starts coming into power. And, um, you know, and then just the opposite with uh, Josh, you know, he was always like the father figure to uh, Adam's character. And then, you know, to see him you know, kind of relent to his brother and, you know, being like, you know, what do you think? You know, mm-hmm. instead of always going, we're going to do this. It's like, well, what do you think? You know, it was like, it was recognition that, you know, his brother is a man and, and uh, you know, a, a human being that can make choices and solid choices. And he really wanted to know what, you know, what should we do next? Yeah. So it was really important to be able to see both of those characters arc. Um, go through the movie that way. Because we really see Rebecca Jordan and Josh, they're essentially, quote-unquote, fully formed adults and functioning in an adult yeah. world. Nick is not. Nick is, no. <laughs> Nick is the guy that brings no. his 10 cans of chili and no can opener. Um, so. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I, but I love, not to give away any spoilers, but what you do with the characters of Nick and Jesse... Wow, you come full circle on both counts with both of those characters, and you've got a common ground that is priceless. Priceless. Yeah, that's uh, that's about six months in a room uh, pounding away at the keyboard with uh, me and Jason. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that it came out on the screen that way. Because this was your first. And we have one tidbit question left with Drago that you'll hear at the tail end of the show today. So you want to stay tuned for that, but you also want to stay tuned because right now we're going to shift gears. And I'm so excited to welcome back Jessica Devaney to the show. Hi, Jess. Hi, Debbie. It's great to be here. I am so excited to have you back so that we can talk about Pray Away now. Thank you. Yeah, it's been an exciting week since we launched on Netflix August 3rd. Wow. I, I you know, it's like it was so it was so wonderful to speak with you right after the Tribeca premiere. Um, but we focused everything on multitude films and producing holding back for this Netflix release and this is this is a powerhouse documentary, Jess. A powerhouse. Mm, thank you so much. 
Uh, you know, now you produced it, Multitude Films. You've also got Ryan Murphy in there. You've got Blumhouse in there. You've got Chicken and Egg in there. Various mm-hmm. production companies came on board for this project because it is, it's a very important project, especially in today's society. Um, mm-hmm. Writer-director Christine Stalakis, um, who had a very personal reason for wanting to tell this story, uh, about the dangerous practice of conversion therapy uh, because of her own uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what What came first with this film? Did Christine have this idea first and come to Multitude, or did it kind of happen organically and you said, hey, I'm interested in this because you grew up in a very evangelical um, community and and world, so, you know, you've got your own experiences there. So I'm curious, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg, so to speak? <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a really great question. You know, with first-time directors, uh, with directors' sort of feature debuts, we often see them choosing um, a film that's very personal um, to their own experience and and coming to us, like, with, some depth of research or access or, or similar when we partner with them. And the same is true of Christine. She was motivated by the experience of seeing her uncle go through conversion therapy for decades uh, after coming out as trans as a child. And um, she knew that she wanted to focus the energies of her debut feature on the topic of conversion therapy. So um, when she came to us, she already had access to a number of the former leaders. And Mm -hmm. because I grew up um, evangelical and in Florida, many of those people were household names to me. Um, And I know just innately that that, uh, conversion therapy is not only continuing today, but even gaining momentum and and so it felt both really timely and and personal um, for us to take take this on. Mm-hmm. You know, what did you find it striking? Because I just I found it amazing the primary interview subjects in this film. Um, they're not shy about coming forward now. You have what you and Christine have put together here. Um, it's very well rounded with different perspectives. Um, was any of this surprising to you? Was there anything you as a producer had to say, you know, pull back on or not use this person, or maybe we should try and get XYZ instead of ABC? Um, I'm curious in that respect, because so much of this film is also comprised of archival footage, so there's no way anybody can get around what was said, what was done, going back into the 1970s. Um, I can't say, no, I didn't say that, no, I didn't do that. Um, and I find that, I like that amount of research. But I'm curious, were there people you wanted, didn't want? How did, how did you navigate those waters here? Um, you know, that's, that's a great question. I think the strategy was very narrow and specific. We wanted to focus on the leadership and how 
conversion therapy being led by folks who are identifying as ex-gay or ex-LGBTQ themselves um, is really an example of their own internalized homophobia wielded outward. Um, and we also really wanted to show through through um, Julie's narrative arc how how leadership is kind of constantly grooming the next generation. Of, so even if, like, all the folks in our film have defected, there's going to be, like, a next generation prepared to kind of take up the torch and, and Julie gets out of the world and um, and then we see that in Jeffrey, who's the leader of the Freedom March. And so so we really just took the strategy of who are the right combination of leaders to bring us through the rise and fall of Exodus International, which was the largest um, and most um, most far-reaching um, umbrella organization for ex-gay ministries around the world. <clears throat> yeah, and Julie Rogers, I think, is, uh, for me, she was the most impactful interview um, in the documentary. She is so articulate. She is, she's also very objective in her analysis of things and how she presents um, viewpoints so that Nobody feels like they're being attacked. Nobody feels like they're being ignored. She's very powerful and very good. And I think, mm -hmm. I really think she's one of the strongest components of this documentary. She is, she has a, a real um, mag magnanimity about mm -hmm. her and, and her ability to look at leaders in conversion therapy, the harm of conversion therapy, broader Christian circles promoting conversion therapy with, with and, and kind of meet them in conversation where they are. Um, and that's really remarkable for the trauma that she has been through um, in her experience. And, and in that way, I think, does become like an emotional heartbeat of the film. Yeah, and she, yeah, and she comes across as being so... Nice. Yeah. <laughs> As I'm sure you have seen many times when you get documentaries and you have quote unquote talking heads, sometimes they mm -hmm. come across as so disingenuous, so not nice. Um, it's like, why would you even want to listen to them? But she comes, <laughs> she comes across genuinely nice. And to include her, her wedding ceremony in a church, uh, I have to say kudos Kudos mm. to Melissa Langer, who is the DP on this film, at capturing mm. a lot of this because we get the personal look, the personal touch mm -hmm. through yeah, so Melissa much has of the a footage. Real special intimacy to her her cinematography, and that definitely enriched the storytelling. Um, particularly in the verite scenes, um, whether with Julie or Jeffrey, you can see how the way that she shows up kind of really creates a, an atmosphere of intimacy. And um, Christine, in many, in many um, scenes, like in much of production, Christine herself recorded audio so that it could just be her and Melissa as a crew in the field to, to make 
to make for as much intimacy as possible. Um, you know, no one's going to forget that a camera is pointing at them, but when, when you bring that kind of personal spirit, I think you really see it play out on screen. Mm -hmm. And that happens throughout the film, throughout the film. Um, you know, this, so much of this is about ebb and flow because you, you and Christine, you're trying to impart information uh, to people as to what the whole idea of conversion therapy is, why it is so dangerous. Um, one of the big things that really comes through that nobody is beating anyone over the head about, but the fact that these spiritual advisors are acting as therapists, but they're untrained. Uh, that's scary. Mm -hmm. That is scary. Um, and when you look at the statistics, with over 700,000 people in the U.S. alone have gone through conversion therapy. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that it was non-therapists acting like therapists, mm -hmm. um, it's almost like people getting on Facebook and all the information that's out there, whether it's disinformation or information, that's their therapy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and that is scary, especially since we're we see that playing out metaphorically with other issues such as vaccines, the COVID vaccine, right now, mm -hmm. and non medical people are disseminating information on social media, and they have no yeah. clue what they're yeah. doing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> To see You're, this, to see this play out, Jessica, is, it's scary. It is scary. It is, yeah. And you're hitting on a really um, important distinction where, you know, you might have seen in the news, like, in a number of states, a number of states are pursuing bans against conversion therapy. Um, and a number of states have already banned conversion therapy. However, these bans only ban licensed practitioners from, from practicing conversion therapy. And because of religious freedom laws, they can't touch um, ministries, churches, um, and, and the kind of 12-step peer-to-peer spaces where most, the majority of conversion therapy is taking place. Um, and so it's really important that alongside the bans, we have a culture change strategy um, where, where, we, you know, where it just becomes so obvious that the these efforts to to change sexual orientation and gender identity cause harm, you know, full stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that that just and the fact that that Christine doesn't beat this over the head, so it stands mm -hmm. out. That stuck with me immediately when I heard it, um, and I was like, whoa. Um, mm -hmm. that made me take a few steps back and I actually had to rewind on Netflix and rewatch. I've already watched mm -hmm. this three times. I saw it once with a screening link and then two more times because there is so much here, Jessica. Um, and it's important. It's important information for the world today that people understand this. You can make up your own minds, but you know, you need to understand uh, in law, we always call it the totality of the circumstances. You need to understand the totality of what's going on. Um, 
you know, holding interest in a documentary like this is so key, which then falls to editing. How challenging was this editing process for you and Christine and your editor, Carla Gutierrez, to find, hit those beats and find that pacing and get that meld of personal with history, with present day, with information? It was definitely uh, quite a delicate dance. Um, Carla, as you know, is just an incredibly powerful editor. And we were really excited to work with her, particularly for the way she is so skilled in using archival footage as sort of verite. And, and, you know, we knew we were going to structure the film the spine of it around the rise and fall of Exodus. Mm -hmm. Um, But finding that kind of the emotional spine alongside that was, was a really delicate um, dance to make sure that we're both giving audiences the information that they need um, and also allowing the stories to play out emotionally and to speak to the harm of conversion therapy. Um, We also had a really amazing archive producer, Aaron Chisholm, who who was a key part of the edit in terms of, you know, Christine and Carla looking for particular, like there's one point um, where we're showing like a number of church exteriors and, you know, like just like these kind of wish lists that they would come up with in the edit and, and Aaron could just jump to finding tons of options that, um, that we could use there. And, and that kind of, interaction between archive and the edit was just like fundamental to um to the film yeah i and you mentioned the church the church images and i have to there are some beautiful beautiful images there it's like you take a look at some of the architecture and everything it looks so pastoral so so pristine so welcoming um, so it really, it's a great metaphoric dichotomy with what actually is going on underneath that beauty mm-hmm. and that calm, uh, you know, but archival materials, I have to say, I am beyond impressed with the amount of archival news footage and other bits and pieces that are used to build up and let everybody know what Exodus is, how it gained so much prestige. Mm-hmm. How long was that research process to find archival material and then cull it down? It, it was something that began with Christine and her initial research um, for the film and then continued with our archival producer through the entirety of the edit, basically. Um, we also had rich archives uh, from the former leaders themselves and their mm-hmm. libraries, and um, and and we, you know, came with like suitcases of VHS and DVDs <laughs> and and things like that um, due to their like savings this this material. Yeah, and that that's a curious thing, and and you know that is addressed slightly uh, in the documentary. Um, saving those things and then now the, you know these individuals they're now bringing them out and looking at a, a piece of their past that they might want to forget 
Um, and I found that that's very emotional to watch that because how many of us have things in our past we don't want to, we've moved on. You don't want to dredge it up mm. again. And here they are. They've held on to these, to this documentation. And mm-hmm. now for this documentary, they're revisiting something that they may, you know, may not be that comfortable in looking back on, but they do. And I found that mm-hmm. really a very powerful thing about the human condition. Yeah, that that was, you know, I think we were very careful to um, to represent that process of them looking back and reflecting. Um, and, and at the same time, we didn't want to make the film um, about, like, just the actions of a particular person, but to really demonstrate that conversion therapy isn't just like a practice, but a coordinated movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and each leader telling their story was a part of demonstrating how it operates as a movement. Um, and, and at the same time, in terms of people grappling with their own complicity in anything, the leaders in our film grappling with their own complicity and harming um, conversion therapy survivors and people who didn't survive is, is a really powerful thing to watch. And we, we didn't want to make any, you know, we didn't want to make conclusions around what accountability or restorative justice or, or et cetera looks like in this, but, but we really wanted to um, <coughs> depict how they were part of a bigger movement. Yeah, and that that really comes across. And you know, you, and by films, end, you know, we are touching on the issue of suicide rates, and so many of the suicides that have arisen, that have occurred because of conversion therapy. Um, and it's staggering. It's staggering. But this is where I have to commend you and Multitude Films, Jessica, because not only do you have on the film information about the Trevor Project uh, and where people can go, but also you can you direct people also to the PrayAwayFilm.com website. And wow. Your resource guide on there is amazing. That is 34 pages of so much vital information um, for people viewing the film, for families that want to view the film, for groups that want to view the film, uh, that provide definitions if you're not sure what things are. Um, That is amazing. Amazing. That multitude had that you have done this with this film, and I can't commend you enough. Thank you. Yeah, I mean that that initiative was really led by our impact producer Miles Markham, and it was really important that we took a trauma informed approach to releasing the film, and that we had you know all the range of mental health and legal resources. 
um, that that folks who are streaming this film, you know, largely at home, possibly in homes that are not affirming or are, are not not safe for them to be grappling with these questions and and um, and make those as visible and accessible to people as possible, um, given given that it's like a stream a global streaming launch. Mm-hmm. You know how how responsible do you feel? Uh, with a project like this as a producer and putting this out into the world um, because Multitude does these very important films, um, social issues, you tackle things, you tackle Mm -hmm. issues of the marginalized um, but this is such a huge, huge issue and it's a delicate one at that. How does that, the responsibility of something like this how do how do you personally deal with that, juggle that, respond to that, and make sure that it's done right? You know that that sense of responsibility built into our producing practice, and I think the first layer is questions around authorship and making sure the team. Is, is comprised of people who have a stake in the communities that will be most impacted by that story. Um, and, and, and so that that sense of responsibility and accountability begins in the earliest stages of filmmaking and then shows through um, what you ultimately see on screen. And so that's, that's a really critical piece. Um, and then, you know, all of our films, you know, as you noted, we're, we're really interested in films that um, speak to kind of the key political issues of our time. Mm-hmm. We know that no film is going to be a silver bullet solution to LGBTQ rights and dignity or immigration justice or um, anti-Black racism or, or similar. Um, and we want to, you know, stay in close touch with movement partners um, in different issue areas um, across several films so that we're, you know, we're, we're paying attention to what people working on the front lines of issues are calling for and what can support um, and, and bring additional resources and also kind of culture change strategy that complements the, the other strategies of movement leaders on a particular issue. Um, so both are really critical for us. You know, have you gotten any pushback on the documentary so far? You know, I think um, the response has been overwhelmingly um, one of how, just how moving um, people feeling like their stories are reflected that there's context um, to some very personal experiences being a part of a, a concerted and strategic movement. Um, and so we've, we've just seen like an outpouring of emotion. Um, and, and it's also been really moving a, a, a group of, I think it's up to a little over 200 conversion therapy survivors um, have started a Facebook group to discuss and process their responses to the film um, and that has been incredible to see kind of folks finding each other and finding the resources and support that they need 
um, around around the film. Um, you know, I think there are there are questions um, that that you know can can arise when we're giving such so much you know airtime to leadership, and and I could understand if if people want to see more a more survivor centered film. Um, but we really wanted to make Pray Away to get at the power analysis of how conversion therapy um, continues to gain momentum and how it operates internally as a contribution to ultimately ending it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so. So the, so the big question, do you as a producer telling this story, do you think the release delay because of COVID and lockdown mm-hmm. Has that helped or hurt the the how this film is being received and how people are connecting to it? I personally think this is a case of where the delay helped because mm. people have gained a better understanding of isolation and being in their own bubble, which so mm. many people are when they're conflicted. Um, but I'm curious as, as to your assessment. You know, I really appreciate that um, that reflection back. I I think through navigating all of COVID's impact on the release of this film, it's been a kind of constant, you know, strategic navigating of continuous unknowns and just trying to like take the best care of the strategy um, of the distribution strategy as possible. And and when COVID happened and and Tribeca twenty twenty shut down um we hadn't sold the film to netflix yet um so and and ryan murphy had not yet come on board and so it really felt like we needed to come up with a kind of creative way to navigate this unprecedented time in order to ensure that the film that we poured so many years into could have a life and it it turned out like in retrospect we couldn't be happier with the launch and our partners at Netflix and Ryan Murphy and Jason Blum and the team at Blumhouse and all of the momentum behind this film. But it wasn't, it, it wasn't a given. And, and looking back to, to that kind of March, April, 2020 period, um, it would have been really nice to know that we would land here today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, for one, I think that this is, this is a case where, the heavens parted. God looked down and smiled and said, you're getting time for a strategy so everyone can see this film. Um, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's an important film. We need it now in these times more than anything, these politically charged times, um, because everything has been politicized. And conversion mm-hmm. therapy is one of, one of the big, big issues. And mm-hmm. people need information, and they need the right information so that they can look at everything objectively, completely, um, being forearmed. That's what it comes down to. And mm-hmm. shining a light where a light really needs to, needs to shine. Jessica, this is an amazing, amazing film. Um, and 
again, I am so excited with what you have done on the website for the film, prayawayfilm.com, with those resource, resource guides and the mental health materials, legal materials. It's easy to navigate. Everybody can go to it and find it. And I really think that if you look through the resource guide, that 34-page resource guide, complete with pictures, people. There are pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> everybody likes pictures. Uh if you go through that, that will only enhance the viewing experience of Pray Away on Netflix. Just, well, thank you so much, and I really appreciate you drawing attention to that. Oh, Jessica, thank you so, so much. This has been another wonderful, wonderful conversation with you. I can't wait to have you back again. You need to get to work. Make some more films. <laughs> Sounds good. Oh, thank you so much. Jessica, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. And that was Jessica Devaney, producer of Pray Away on Netflix now. And, folks, it doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on. Gaining information on a subject, there is never anything wrong with that. Um, and I say this because of my own family. We have some on each side of the fence. So, you know... Watch Pray Away. It is on Netflix. Um, Go to prayawayfilm.com. Check out the resource guide. Um, Check out the mental health and legal resources that are provided there. Um, It's very extensive. Um, But, yeah, it's just one more piece of information for us in today to navigate today's world. And now, as promised, we're going to backtrack a little. And we're going to go back to, now, can you, because I don't want my question cut off. You stopped it. I think we're okay. I think we're okay where you stopped it. So we are going to go back to my exclusive interview with Drago Timon talking about the stairs. And some really interesting thoughts from him. On, on what he learned, <laughs> I couldn't even read my own notes, on what he learned about himself as a filmmaker for a future, because this is his first film, his first directorial narrative feature, what he learned about himself that he can now take forward. Take a listen keyboard with uh, me and Jason so um, yeah I'm glad that it came out on the screen that way because this was your first feature and not just directing but co-writing and directing what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker going beyond what you've learned over the past 20 years as a stunt coordinator a fight choreographer doing stunts teamwork collaboration for safety's sake now that you were the one in the big chair, you're in the high chair, you're at the top of the stairs now. You know, what, right. did, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker that you can now take forward into future films? That's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, I would definitely, well, one for, for the first part, I guess, would be that, you know, I really 
enjoyed directing and see myself doing a lot more of it, uh, you know, and uh, maybe just going full time into that. Um, and I think what I learned was, I mean, I've always known this uh, working, but, uh, you know, it's the collaboration uh, process. Uh, whereas normally there's like maybe two or three people I collaborate with, you know, with stunts and, mm -hmm. you know, or, or if somebody has me come on as an actor doing my own stunts, you know, it's like I collaborate with, you know, the, uh, the director and the writers and then the cinematographer, whereas, you know, as, as the director and uh, writer, it, it, you had to connect with every single cast member every single crew member because it's like you know we're all a team trying to get the same uh thing which is a movie in a can and to get it the best that we can and so everybody has ideas of how to do that so you know you really have to be open to collaboration and um uh you know implementing it but you also have to have that vision you know that's the important part is you know you can't sacrifice your vision just to collaborate with somebody but you also have to um, detach that ego so that you are open to the collaboration, you know, to make a scene better, um, you know, and just going forward, uh, I just see myself being, you know, more and more open to that. Well, this, the stairs is definitely a step in the right direction because right off the bat, you show us how adept you are at character development and focusing on a story built on character and not action and i just love it drago this is this has been so much fun talking to you i can't wait to see what you come up with next and i and i can't wait to talk to you again thanks yeah please pencil me in uh, i would love to come back on for my next one and drago has an open invitation to come back anytime but hey here's a tidbit for all of you this was an edited down version of my interview with Draco. There is more. And you'll be able to hear that tonight on BehindTheLensOnline.net. And also, because it's done in a beautiful video slideshow with images from the film, so you can see what we're talking about as we go through the film. It's also on our YouTube channel, Behind the Lens uh, Elias Entertainment YouTube channel. So that will be up and out for you tonight. But don't forget, check your listings, theater listings. August 12th, 700 theaters in the U.S. The stairs, one night only. Then it's going to pop out uh, onto digitals, premiums, uh, VO, uh, VOD. I can't recommend it highly enough. I love this film so much. The great cast, Kathleen Quinlan, John Schneider, Stacey Oristano, Tyra Kalar, Brent Bailey, and Adam Corson and Thomas Wethington, who steal the show. Let me tell you. Um, more, more, Drago. I want more films from you. What a great debut feature. And, of course, Pray Away on Netflix. See it, see it, see it. Um, that is all the time we have today. We'll be back next week. Josh Tessier will be joining us to talk about his new film, Overrun. Plus, the embargo finally lifts on Friday, this Friday on my exclusive interviews with 
Luke Millar of Weta talking about Jungle Cruise and everybody's favorite, Proxima the Jaguar, as well as Ian Seabrook, who did all of the underwater photography in Jungle Cruise. So you're going to hear one or both of those next week. But until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 